Hi, this is Dave Schwenson, author of The Beatles at Shea Stadium, and you're listening to the Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another exciting edition of the Fab Four Free For All, the weekly all-talk Beatles and related podcast, radio show on the internet, whatever you want to call it, just listen, because sometimes we have some good things to say. And especially today we do, because, hey, by the way, I'm Mitch Axelrod, your moderator, and joining me as always are... Tony Giguardo and Rob Leonard. And today we have a guest on the phone. We are welcoming back someone who we've talked to before. Uh, he has a book called The Beatles in Cleveland, and he has written a new book called The Beatles at Shea Stadium, the story behind their greatest concert. We want to welcome back to Fab Four Free For All, Dave Schwenson. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We are doing great. Now, yeah, you hadn't talked to me in so long, I thought you were mad at me. No. <laughs> well, we no, are no. mad at you, but we've decided to call you anyway. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, thank you very much. Anytime. So if it gets a little hostile because of the, you know, on the interview, we, you know why. That's all right. I'm on the phone. I can always hang up. <laughs> That's true. And so can we. Click. No. <laughs> thank no. you for listening, everyone. No. Yeah, right. This has been a great show with Dave Schwenson. Yeah, no. we had a lot of laughs. I'll see you guys next book. Um, no, but you know what? I want to. Uh, we 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 have to get into this book because I think you're right. In in the Beatles' history, everybody always points to Shea Stadium, and even the Beatles did mm-hmm. as their greatest show. So the one thing I will say is, you're not from New York, are you, Bob? But I lived in New York. I lived in Manhattan for 13 years. Okay. I stood on the uh, pitcher's mound at Shea Stadium many wow. years ago. I looked around and thought, geez, you know, this is but kind of like what it was like. And actually, you there. you could you could actually. Still stand I didn't on have there. anyone in the stands. I was there for another reason, but I had to imagine. <laughs> you didn't have 56,000 people screaming at you? No, I didn't have Dave. that. I was actually part of a television commercial, so I had a director screaming at me to get off the field. <laughs> That's what we did for the Mets oh, for many years. We screamed, get <laughs> off the field. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, let's get into this book right away because, you know what, there's so much to cover. Well, um, can I say something before we start? When, no. when we interviewed him for The Beatles in Cleveland... I said, well, let's talk about the real important show, Shea Stadium. And we, then we went Did into you the, really? Yeah, I said, I and that. then you ended up writing a book right afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I had sleepless nights for many years, so I figured, all right, Rob's right. I better write it. <laughs> because well, we're, we're from New York, and besides you know, the fact that it's a film, but it's just the fact that we're New Yorkers. We've heard so many stories in the papers every five years or so on anniversaries of yeah. Spiels at Shea Stadium. Yeah. So for yeah. us, it's, it's a little bit closer than men, many other people. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it had been so famous all the time. Now, I saw my Beatles experience was in Cleveland, of course. That's why I wrote the first book, uh, The Beatles in Cleveland, because that's where I saw them in concert. But Shea Stadium was always the one that everybody referred to. I mean, that was just the big one. Of course, the television film and, you know. And we'll get into just, that, believe me. Yeah. Actually, that to us, because uh, us New, York, New Yorkers, we've all, you know, experienced Shea Stadium uh, either up close or in person or have heard about it so much because we live here that to me personally the the most exciting part of this book and th- there's a lot of exciting parts in the book but the most exciting for me was finding out all about the whole Clayco films and what remained after with Ron Fermanagh but that we need to get to so let's yeah. why don't we start at the beginning yeah. okay well I just have to just ask no. because in in perspective Dave are you moderating no I'm not but I've got to throw this out because Dave was just saying about standing on the pitcher's mound yes there. yes how did that feel for you? I mean, you've been a lifelong Beatle fan, obviously. Oh, no, it was tremendous. I mean, like I said, I, when I lived in Manhattan, and I became a Mets fan. You know, I'm a Cleveland oh, Indians fan. Sorry to, hear, sorry to hear that. Mets. I was there in 86 for the World Series. Yay. My friend 
who's in the book, parachuted into Shea Stadium during that seventh game. Right. Michael, yes. Michael Sergio. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, when I had a chance to go, every time I went to Shea Stadium, uh, you know, I thought about the Beatles concert. I mean, I was there in 1989 when the Stones played. I saw about five of those shows. Yeah, right. those, were, those were interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, the whole time I'm sitting there going, this is, you know, the Beatles started this. Right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I consider myself to be a bit of a pop culture historian, and I know where things started and what happened, and, you know, it was the Beatles. And so yeah. Shea Stadium, to me, was always the Beatles. It wasn't right. baseball, or even when they built it for the Jets, for the first Open, you know, it was... Mm-hmm. The Beatles to me, Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm Absolutely. surprised that when they tore it down, they didn't have a spot. There there's was nothing commemorating. Nothing commemorating. It just blows my mind that there's not, there's not a statue, there's nothing commemorating nothing. that yeah, event. Some people happened. who are in charge, maybe. I guess we can't blame the older generation anymore because that's us. But, right. uh, <laughs> no, but you know something? The Wilpons who own the Mets and they own City Fields. There's more stuff about the Brooklyn Dodgers than about the Mets or anything else, as, as a person in New York. Oh, yeah. amazing. So let's get started right away, because in January of 65, yeah. Brian Epstein, and I'm, and I'm going to call him Epstein, Epstein, it doesn't matter, because we've heard that he, he went by both. So yeah. Brian Epstein writes to Robert Precht and Ed Sullivan asking about another possible Beatle appearance, correct? Yes, if they were interested. Right. Yeah, assuming you're interested, I yes. think the letter says. Yeah. So... Talk about that a little bit. Well, he was uh, planning the Beatles' summer tour, and of course, Ed Sullivan was such a big show, you know, over here, that uh, uh, he had already been in contact with Sid Bernstein. Right. Sid was already planning to do the Shea Stadium show, and when Brian was coming to New York in January 1965, uh, he expected Sid to give him a 50% deposit yeah. for the Beatles for Shea Stadium. Which comes in later for promotion, doesn't it? Uh, it certainly does, yeah. Sid really, uh, I always laugh that they say the record for selling out Shea Stadium, of course, was what, Grand Funk Railroad or something in yeah. 72 hours? Well, if Sid had had a computer back then, if he didn't have to open everything by hand, <laughs> I think he could have beat that record for the Beatles. But uh, that's just my opinion. But uh, Brian was coming to New York City to kind of finalize Shea Stadium and set up the Beatles' summer tour. And, um, yes, he sent a telegram to Bob Precht and um, Ed Sullivan that uh, if they were interested in having the Beatles on the TV show again, that he would be in town and they can get together and work it out. That's so odd because we all know that Ed Sullivan ends up introducing the Beatles, but Ed Sullivan takes advantage of the fact that the Beatles asked him about another possible appearance because then he goes on and asks them to film the concert, which right. which we'll get into. But Brian Epstein didn't think that the, that the Beatles could fill Shea. No, he was worried about that, and that's what held him back, because um, even when they came over in February 64, uh, Sid was interested in, you know, he had the two concerts at Carnegie Hall, which, you know, they put extra seats on the, on the stage, if you've yeah. seen photos of that. For each one of those two shows, they put 300 seats on the stage around and behind the Beatles, because they that's had such a ticket demand for that. Just staggering. Uh, he took uh, Brian over to Madison Square Garden and showed him that. Which, he, which we might want to add, I'm sorry, Dave, quickly, that is not in the current location right, right, yeah, of it Madison Square Garden. Right. It was down, what, in the 30s, 34th yeah. Street at that time? Well, that, at that time it was the 50th and 8th. Yeah. Now okay. it's the 33rd and 7th. Yeah. Anyway, Brian said, let's wait on something like that. Uh, the Beatles were still, I mean, of course, they were so popular, but they were still playing mainly theaters, especially in, in England. They were still playing theaters. And when they toured here in the summer of 64, they got into the sports arenas that were about, what, 10, 12, 15,000 people. Uh, nothing that big, like a stadium show yet or anything. And, and for Brian Epstein, it was, it was all PR. I mean, it would look bad for his boys 
if there were any empty seats. Right. You know, the big key back then was sellout. You know, if you could put sold out, I mean, you were popular. So if there were any empty seats, that, that wasn't cool. So uh, when, when Sid brought up Shea Stadium, Brian wasn't sure because it was so big, 55,600 seats. Nobody had done that before. You know, right. the Beatles had never played anything like that before. And, um, you know, it would look bad if half the stadium was empty. I mean, it would still be selling maybe 30,000 seats, but it would look empty. Right. So right. Sid All guaranteed random. that whatever seats weren't sold, he would buy himself for 10 bucks a piece. Now, that's a big guarantee because think about it. If they, even if they did sell at 20,000, yeah. we're talking about almost 31,000 more seats at $10. Yeah. I mean, for Sid to say that, and as we find out in the book, which I didn't know, Sid didn't have that money to even give him the 50% deposit, <laughs> right. did he? Right. That's, that's such a wonderful story. I like that. No, he didn't have the money. Yeah. They were all talk. A- exactly, but he had faith in the Beatles. But, yeah. th- but think about it. Sid Bernstein didn't promote big stadium shows. This was a big thing for him, too. Yeah. Well, yeah. it hadn't been done on this level. Now, I, I, when I researched, I found out you know, Elvis had done, a, uh, I think, about six stadium shows in the 50s before he went into the Army. And the biggest one was the Cotton Bowl. And I think he sold 26,000 seats, something like that. And that's Elvis. That was Elvis. Yeah. Right. So here it was less than 10 years later. It was, I think it was like, when, when did Elvis go in the Army? 57, 58? Uh, 60. Okay, well then think, in yeah, 65, here come the Beatles, and they're playing a stadium that, you know, they had to draw twice as many people as Elvis. Yeah. But and there were four it. times as many of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, uh, it's amazing. You know, that's why this concert is so fun to, to focus on and look at, because it really hadn't been done. It was the birth of stadium rock, basically. Yeah. That's what that's it was. True. Thinking about the concert, if it wasn't filmed, do you think it would have the importance that, that we think about it? You know, that's a very interesting question. Because they played uh, Atlanta, you know, a couple of days later, they sold out the Atlanta Stadium there right. and, uh-huh. and other, you know, Dodger Stadium and other places. But this was New York. Yeah, let, yeah, let me... Well, Dodger Stadium was yeah, next it, year, Hollywood was, Bowl This 65. was New York. New York City... And to me, it still is the media capital of the world. I mean, I, again, I lived there, and there's no place like it. And we it. live here. <laughs> I, I lived, that was a D at the end of that, okay? Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, anything that happens in New York, you know, it's, sure. it's news around the world. I'll tell you the truth right now. I'm living out here in uh, Cleveland, and I'm moving to Chicago next month, by the way. Oh. But I still read the New York Post every day. Ah, so you're transplanted, and then, and when are we going to get the next book as the Beatles in Chicago? Oh, jeez, don't, oh, sorry. don't, you're really trying to kill me? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, the mayor of New York City, Sid Bernstein, had to fight with New York City to get this done, and I had no idea that there was someone very special as a teenager who was put in charge of this show. Yeah, it was that Jeffrey Katzenberg. Which is mind-blowing to yeah. me. Yeah, he went on to be, uh, no, I don't remember, he went on to head Disney and yep. uh, DreamWorks. DreamWorks and all the stuff years later. But yeah, he was a teenage intern. Did you ever get to try to interview him? No, I didn't. Uh-uh. Did you want to? Uh, you know, I didn't even really think about that, honestly. Now I feel guilty that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I was just as surprised as you guys when I read that. Yeah. I went, hey, yeah, that's I've wild. heard of this guy. Yeah, but that, <laughs> I've never, ever, ever heard that at all no. before I read the book. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, well, I found out some very interesting things when I researched that book. I mean, really, I even said in the forward, there were so many moments of like, hey, I didn't know that. Mm. Right. That was, that was going on. And I've been a big, I'm a first-generation Beatles fan. You know, I, I followed this for years now. 50 right. years now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to put on my librarian hat, which Uh-oh. I do sometimes. But as, a, as research, Dave, 
What did you find? Did, did you go back to a lot of the uh, the newspapers? I know, obviously, when it comes to the fan base stuff, there's there's fan interviews and things. But uh, did you go back and find a lot of information that just had really not been caught before by going back to early press clippings from the time and from, obviously, you had the firsthand interviews with people who were involved with the film, which is just mind-boggling and wonderful stuff. Yeah. But where did the research take you first? You know, I, I probably... Um of course, I've read just about everything there is about the Beatles. So, I mean, I went through, sure. read all the books. Yeah, I went online, did a lot of research. A lot of it came from the people I talked with. Right. You know, right. I mean, because they were the ones there. I, again, I'm a big Beatles fan, so I wrote this for fans. You know, right. I mean, it's like I, right. I was writing it for myself. Sure. It's like I did sure. the first book because I just thought it was so interesting. So, when I could get, you know, Cousin Brucey on the phone and right. talk with him, telling me about the Beatles' first press conference, and talking about being in their hotel rooms, and then, uh, of course, Ron Fermanac with the uh, all this stuff you see in there about the television special uh, and all the editing. We're getting to that now. We are going to get to that. Yeah, that that just blew my mind. And ours. And uh, but even you know Michael Adams, whose dad from Clayco Films, Clay Adams filmed the TV special, so he was on the field with his dad. Right. And the you fans know. too. You right. have to, you interview a lot of fans. Well, you guys kind of helped me with that too. I mean, many years ago, because this book took me, took me over three years to write, and I put the word out to everyone you know, in the Beatles community that I was looking for fans. And you guys did something. I don't know if it was on your Facebook page or if yeah. you said something. But, yeah. you know, a lot of the other shows did also. And yep. so, you know, I thank you in the book, of course. Thank yes, you. And we appreciate that. Yeah, but that helped because those fans were getting in touch with me. And, and some of them had some very good stories. And, and I used those. I didn't use everything, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's one good. picture that um, one of the fans took from their seat. Yeah, yeah Mark Catoni. Yes, yeah, yeah. and it, it's it's a nice. If you ever been in Shea Stadium, for those who never were there, if you sat in the upper deck, you were far away. Yeah, <laughs> and it's also that input too from member of the Ronettes and oh, her yeah, husband Nedra. as well, Nedra, and uh-huh. that's that's also fascinating too because you have a, a another performer's take. Yeah, uh, someone who was around at the time and was doing you know as you talk about in there the Brooklyn Paramount shows and the the things that were. The more common rock performance spaces, yeah. right? And seeing this in perspective, you know, was mind blowing. Yeah, her and her husband, future husband, and you know, yeah, because at the time, you know, she said we weren't looking at it like this would be something you'd be talking about forty, fifty years later. It of was course, a job. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. but what struck me so hard about you know when I talked with her, and she's in the beginning of the book because she met the Beatles in January of '64, a month before they came over here, and it was her. I think it was her nineteenth birthday. In right. London, they were touring with the Ronettes, and the Rolling Stones were opening for them. But what really struck me was how young these people all were. Yeah. The Ronettes, yeah. the Beatles, these were young kids. I mean, George Harrison was, what, 20 years old? Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, yep. you know, here, you know, just two, three years later, they're standing on this stage in the middle of Shea Stadium with 60,000 or 55,600 people screaming at them. I mean, how mind-boggling is that? Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, you do describe, there's, there's quotes in the book about... You know, having the Beatles coming over and having the fans seeing them in the helicopter above and them seeing the fans, you know, at just about dusk or uh, the descriptive is really great. But I want to talk about let's go back to Ed Sullivan for a moment. OK. Uh, Ed Sullivan asks Sid Bernstein without a contract, can I film the concert? And he, he says, yes. Yeah. Without, without a contract, which is unheard of. Yes. Well, but not back yeah. then, because, again, Nobody had done this before, so Sid Bernstein didn't even think there were no T-shirt sales, right? You know, uh, video cassette sales or whatever they might have had. It was he just 
put the Beatles on, he got the ticket money, he paid them, and he kept the rest. Yeah. And but when there was... Sullivan called about this, yep. it was like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, but... the no questions of pay-per-view or, you know... Right. I mean, all right. right. And the ticket prices were kind of high for that time, weren't they? Uh, you know, what they say, about 550 455 and 565 Yeah. I that mean, now... Bucks. You know, now, yeah, big bucks, and now you go to McCartney, and it's You can't pay for a soda with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, you're right. At the McCartney show. Yeah. yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you have I'm going to gonna stand outside the McCartney show and hope I hear something when someone opens the door. <laughs> when someone and we're going to do the same. That's what we're going to do, too, and say we were there. Uh, <laughs> well, but, you know, yeah, I mean, those were, those, that was big bucks. I mean, even when I saw the Beatles in 66, it was $5.50 was the highest ticket, and I had to... My parents ran a business. They ran a bakery, and I'm telling you, I washed a lot of pans and swept a lot of floors to earn that money. Yeah, that I mean, in perspective, I mean, it was a lot of money back then. Yes, uh, well, but, I, I do have a question. You said you saw the '66 show. Yes, um, but you only focus on the '65 show. Was there thought of doing uh, no, focusing on both? To, no, because I look at the '65 show as the height of the Beatlemania of touring in this country. I really look at it as their greatest show. Mm-hmm. Okay, 66, I know there were some empty seats. People have said, oh, you should have included that one also. No, I, I had a lot of stuff about 65, and that's the one I was really interested in. Although and, George Orsino, who you do interview, who is the photographer, yes. he was also, I believe, at the 66, and he has some great 66 pictures. Yeah, I've seen some great shots, you know, where yeah. they wear the light which, pinstripe suits yeah, and everything. Which are but, pretty rare. Yeah, you know, but, but, you know, I, I was into this one show. I thought, let me just focus on something. I, I just didn't want to bite off more than I can chew. And well, it was the first of its kind. Yes, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it would have distilled the kind of the essence of the idea. That but And we should say concept. George Orsino, uh, the picture on the cover is George, yes. George Orsino. Picture. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a fantastic That's, shot? I yeah. love it. Uh, the wraparound. Yeah, the wraparound yeah. where Paul's staring down and everyone else is playing, man. It's just, it's a nice little... He sees the picture coming, the rest of the band doesn't. Yeah. That's a very cool picture. No, but it is a great one. Now, again, let's get back to the filming, because Clayco Films, which Clay Adams' company, now films, and very astutely in 35 millimeter. Yeah, this was shot like a big, like a major motion picture. Because that wasn't really shot like that at the time. No, I mean, you look at the other concerts back in that day, you talk about even like Woodstock, or Monterey, and Altamont, those things were shot on what, like 16 millimeter? They were... Not like the Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium was shot like a motion picture. And they did include, I mean, the call was, and I have to say, you've dug out some incredible documentation from the recordings and from, you know, the itineraries and what was used. And I mean, that alone, I love that kind of stuff, the the memos. Just the memos. The recreation of the memos, yeah. Yeah. Those are like... Those are historical documents. It's like I had the Lincoln uh, Gettysburg Address sitting here on my desk. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, one thing oh, I do like about that you actually retyped them out because they are, they have aged a lot. And yeah, even if you'd printed them out, they wouldn't have been very visible. So yeah, I like the fact see, that you I, did that. I, I did both ways in the book. I have it in there. I said for Beatle historians, here's what the document looks like now. But you can see it's aged. It's very yeah. yellowed. And some of it you can't, you know, it's hard to make out. So I did retype it out on the pages around it so you can actually see what was on there so you can read it. Yeah, it's fascinating. So they called for them to be actually in the dressing rooms and to really make it like a a documentary, which it ended up being. But Uh a lot of the footage, like in the helicopter, was 16 millimeter, but it was interspersed in that 35 millimeter documentary. Yeah, they had the handheld cameras that were with them in cars and the helicopter and backstage. You know, what a lot of people didn't know, and again, I didn't realize this either, but the entire visit in New York City, they landed on Friday. They were met by a camera crew. They filmed everything until they left on Tuesday. The concert was Sunday. 
Yep. And they filmed everything from Friday to Tuesday because the original idea behind the TV show was the Beatles' visit to New York. Sort of like what's happening in the USA. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I mean, they showed them in the cars. They showed them landing at the airport, getting in the car, going to the Warwick Hotel, uh, the next day going down to the Ed Sullivan Show. There, there was footage of all this. The yep. Beatles leaving the Ed Sullivan Theater, the whole bit. And then... Um, we're, they only wound up using the concert. Yeah, we're going to start was old, crying right now. It was deemed yeah, unusable. Yeah, I don't want to say what happened to the film. It's in the book. But, yeah, uh, I mean, just the idea of you know later you just see the the listing of all of that material, all of those takes, and then the you know the phrases next to it just deemed unusable. Yeah. Ugh, good oh, Lord. Yeah. And you and know. we will we will get to that in a moment, but we're going to take a break on Fab Four Free for All. We are talking with author Dave Schwenson. Uh, the book is The Beatles at Shea Stadium: The Story Behind Their Greatest Concert. And we will be right back on Fab Four Free For All after this. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to let you know that besides Fab Four Free For All, each of the three of us are involved in our own individual projects. Mitch Axelrod's two books, Beetle Tunes, the only book about the cartoon Beatles show, and Little Billy and Baseball Bob, can be found through... All of your good booksellers online, including Amazon.com, or if you'd like autographed copies, contact Mitch on Facebook. And my buddy Rob Leonard has a great Beatles show that he's been doing for 20 years called Beatles Songs, and it's on every Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can listen to it online. It's streaming at www.ncc.edu slash WHPC. And also look for it on TuneIn.com. And Tony Truquardo is the host of 4F, free format for free, on WCWP 88.1 on Long Island. He's on every Monday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and also at www.wcwp.org. Also available on TuneIn.com. And we are back, and we are speaking with author Dave Schwenson, the author of The Beatles at Shea Stadium, the story behind their greatest concert. And we were talking about filming of the show and stuff that was deemed unusable. And yeah. in whatever documents they did have for the filming, well, Dave, you tell us, what happened to the stuff that was deemed unusable? Oh, God, yeah, like I said, before the commercial break, you guys are going to cry, but it well, was destroyed. Well, we all got the tissues. Oh. It was destroyed. Oh, yeah. Um, they kills. didn't keep anything back then. It's like... Also, in the book, in the beginning, you know, I talked with uh, the late Clay Cole, who yes. had a very, you know, famous New York television show back then. They would film these shows, they would show it on TV, then they would film over it. Uh, you know, yeah. they would erase the film and use it again or toss it. And that's why we lost a lot of his television shows and a lot of the great stuff from the early, mid-60s. Yeah. But yeah, even the outtakes during the Shea Stadium concert, I mean, there was something like 12 35-millimeter cameras on that field. So they were right. filming from all different angles. And when they edited that film together, the, the stuff they didn't use was left on the cutting room floor. And, and meanwhile, you know, none of the three of us were working there, so you know, we couldn't have walked away with it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, here, everybody talks about the lost footage of, you know, she's a woman and everybody's trying to be my baby. Well, she's a woman was filmed you know, from a distance, not the close cameras. That's the reason it's not in the TV documentary. They were all changing film at the same time, the cameras. That, you know? that oh. I found unbelievable, that simultaneously all of the cameras ran out and they couldn't film that. The mistake that, was starting yeah. them at the, at the, the same time. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, they all yeah. Started, they had, they, If you look, there are photos. I don't have any of those, but there were alarm clocks around the field. 
and they all kind of went off at the same time or whatever, and that was the signal for all the camera guys to change their film. Uh, how did so, you hear the clocks? <laughs> well, the they could see it, you know. <laughs> and you would have thought that someone would have come up with that clever idea like they did in Later in Let It Be with the Nagra reels. Gee, maybe we'll stagger the start yeah, times so well, they, that someone they, still... Whew. They didn't do that. So during She's a Woman, they all changed the film in the camera. Oh, so, man. you know, I know I've seen it on, like, YouTube and stuff. I said, here's the lost footage of She's a Woman. Well, it's not. No, it's not. Because there isn't any. And yeah. then, um, of course, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, George's only solo during the, uh, the show, was edited out of the TV film because of time, time constraints. And also, it, it wasn't uh, a song they had written. There wasn't going to be any residuals coming into them. Right. Yeah. And, and it wasn't anything new. Like, Act Naturally was a new song coming out. Let's so. talk about Act Naturally, because that was the real big revelation to me. You know, we all know that in the film, they play the recorded track synced to the right. live track. But I didn't, I, I didn't put two and two together, and you put it together for me and for everybody now, that... The single yesterday, Back With Act Naturally, didn't come out until September. Yeah. And, and they filmed the Ed Sullivan show the day before Shea Stadium on August 14th. Right. So, yes, they filmed them singing Act Naturally, but that was going to be shown in September when the single was out, so people would have known it by then, but they didn't know it when Shea was going on. No, nobody knew what Ringo was singing at Shea Stadium. They, yeah. That's why I was talking to the fans up in the stands, and they were saying, well, is he singing... Boys, is he singing? I want to be your man. They have no idea what song Ringo was singing, and he was singing "Act Naturally." But yeah, you're right. It had not come out in this country. It was out in England on right. the Help LP, the, the British version. Right. But we, of course, we didn't have that over here. Which is unbelievable. I mean, why, why, oh, why would the Beatles include that in the biggest concert? Because they did take it out. Well, they took it out afterwards. They After, went to "I Want to Be Your Man." Yeah, right. yeah. They did go back to the older song. I think later in that tour, but. Um, you know, I don't know why. That's a, that's a good question. But for them... But it, was a, it was a revelation for me. Yeah. Well, one and, of the things I thought interesting also, Dave, is that the camera guys were told not to... For those who don't know, at, at Chase Stadium, there's a Longines uh, clock oh, yeah. in the back, and they were told to, not to film that because it sure. might interfere with sponsorship or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were sponsoring the contest, so don't put them in the shot. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, they're filming long shots of the stadium. How do you not get that in? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that they would think about that before the show instead yeah. of other things. Well, because you don't want, when Timex comes in and wants to offer a, uh, you know, you don't want to have a Longines sign up there. That's right. Free. It's called show business, guys. <laughs> you bet, man. Because, <laughs> you know, the Beatles did take a lick in and yeah, <laughs> take a lick in and keep well, on. Yeah, they yeah. did keep on taking One of the things, one of the great things in this book is a letter from Bob Preck. Uh-huh. To Brian Epstein, this is right after he was trying to s say to the Beatles and Brian and I guess George Martin, don't overdub. Well, the, we didn't right. get to that yet. The, well, we were jumping. What's, we're jumping around. And it, to me- the head of all of us, Rob. Yeah, well, you know. So I thought it was a very strongly written letter considering it's their music, and but I also agree with him uh, in the sense that I, what, what happened to the movie- isn't a true representative of absolutely. What was going. It's not a warts and all presentation. Yeah, it's no. not a warts and all. And I'm sure Paul's bass sounded fine. It's just maybe lower in the mix. That's all. And nowadays they can probably fix it, but that's something else. Oh, uh, they can fix it. By the way, I've heard the new mix of uh, just two of the songs. I had access to it when I was writing the book, and I've actually heard the remixed live version of "She's a Woman" and "Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby," which is different than what you hear on the anthology. Ooh, really? Yeah, and they're hot. I'm telling you guys, as a Beatles fan, these <laughs> things just rock. 
Wow. And, uh, so when are we going to get to hear them? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not allowed. Honestly, I'm not I've, saying you. I, I heard them. I was allowed to hear them. I have little snippets of each. I'll admit that. Yep. But I do not have the entire song because I'm not allowed to have it. No, obviously. And I'll release it. But I'm telling you, I couldn't believe these were taken from the raw audio recordings from Shea Stadium. How well, uh, They can knock out the sound. They can raise instruments. It just sounds great. Well, let's talk about that a little because as Rob alluded to, the Beatles, uh, or not the Beatles, Brian Epstein and George Martin actually, yeah. decide that, you know what, uh, we heard it. There were so many different technical difficulties going on. First of all, the speaker system was horrible. Everything else, there were dropouts. So, I rightfully so, they wanted to sweeten a little bit. Unfortunately, they decided to really redo Ticket to Ride, Help and I Feel Fine. And also, Twist and Shout is, is not from Shea, it's from the Hollywood, Hollywood Bowl. Bowl. yeah. But, you know what, I don't know if I, I love that decision or not, having heard the the, the boards, because they're not bad. And, and I know what Bob Preck was talking about, he wanted it as it happened, as it says in the memo. Well, you know, getting back to Bob Preck there, though, I don't mean to yep. interrupt. No, that's um, fine. They were selling this concert to network television as, well, they call it, as it happened. Right. Okay, so if you're going to sweeten the music or re-record it, they were supposed to say that in the advertising. They would be false advertising, I guess. Right. If, if you build it as it happened, but it wasn't really. So that was his main concern. But, but it wasn't course, shown until 67, so it wasn't as it happened anyway. Uh, there wasn't a big demand for it. Right. The and Beatles made a big splash over here, of course, on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. 75 million people watched it. But, you know, now you're getting around the summer of 65 and everything was kind of settling down. And you had that big generation gap. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the parents were still in control and the Beatles were long-haired rock and rollers. But it was, you know what, Ed Sullivan was working for CBS. And in well, conjunction with Clayco, made this film. Right. And you would think that CBS would jump on it. Yeah, but they didn't because there were a couple TV shows earlier that summer. Murray the K had a special on. and um, Damn him. <laughs> yeah, and there was another one. I can't think of the name of it offhand, but Carol Burnett and Bob Newhart were the co-hosts. The Entertainers. Ooh. Okay, yes. And they did a special on the Beatles 64 tour. And both of them were ratings bombs. Okay, wow. they didn't pull in the ratings. Yeah, so well. CBS decided they weren't going to show this concert. Uh-huh. You know, Shea Stadium, they, they had it, but they wound up selling it to ABC later, but they shopped it around to all the other networks. Because originally CBS was going to promote it for Christmas. Right. But then ABC gets it, and it doesn't go on until January 10th on ABC, and by then, it really was a historical piece, as yeah. you say, because the Beatles moved on, they were doing Pepper, and... So well, it, that was January 10th, 1967, by the way. Right, 67. They were going to have it on the 65 Christmas season. That's right, and it was until pretty much a year and a, a half year and later. later. Yeah. Right. And, and by then, it really was a historical piece. Right. I mean, we didn't realize it at the time. Right. This was before Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. We were just starting to get the pictures of that time of the Beatles with mustaches. We knew something was different, but, you know, really, they had just toured in 66. But December so. of 66, Revolver came out. So, in August 1966. I'm sorry, you're, you're right. So, you know, they're really a different Beatles. Than... Yeah, but they still toured. You know, the Revolver was the album out during the 66 tour. Yeah, yeah you so still had it right. Was, I mean, the, to me, the real breakthrough was Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, when that happened. But we were still waiting for them to tour in 67. Right. And I've got a clip in my Beatles in Cleveland book that I cut out of a newspaper and I held on to it. I still have it. And I think it was May 1967. It says, Beatles may sing swan song. Wow. And telling us they're not going to tour that summer. And I was like, I was going to see him again. Again, I was slicing a lot of bread and washing a lot of pans to earn money for that ticket. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine him on tour in 67. He ended up saving and just buying that Elvis Presley ticket for the 77 tour. That, no, I'm oh, sorry. Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> so let's move on because I want to really get to this whole uh, film and restoration. Uh-huh. And, because this part of the book just made me cry. I mean, because you do say that there were so many different uh, mixes made and... Although the outtakes were destroyed, which we still hate, and we always will hate, there were so many different, and you have to read the book to see how many different, we're not going to give it away because we want you yeah, really- Yeah, the different layouts of the yeah, film. Yeah, of the and film and what fantastic. was presented to these people. And, yeah. And- That, Dave, was so one, just wonderfully enlightening. And, that was great. And what happened to all that stuff, Dave? What do you mean? The, the outtakes? No, no. The outtakes were destroyed. We know that. But all the different mixes and prints, where are they? Oh, they're the vault at Apple. They own them. Now, Ron Fermanac was a big part of that last section of the book. Right. Can Michael, you explain who he is? He is the first, I guess you call him, restorer of what, Beatles films. Archivist. Uh, archivist. Yeah, the archivist. archivist. Yeah. Okay, Neil Aspinall hired him. Right. Okay, he worked directly with him. He restored, now I don't have the list in front of me, but he restored Magical Mystery Tour, Let It Be, uh, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, I think the Beatles Washington concert. He went in, he's a film restorer. Right. And, and audio. So he's taking these things that, you know, are ages old and, you know, remixing the audio and taking out the hisses and making them sound better right. and the remastered kind of stuff. Right. And the same thing with the film that's losing maybe some of the color after all these years and he's bringing it all back. That's what he does. Right. And uh, he finished that Shea Stadium film. It's all refurbished. It's all done. The sound, everything. It's but hang on. But wait, because at first it was being restored for a solo Beatle project. Uh, the John Lennon Imagine film. Yeah. Yes, and I remember seeing that in New York City. I was down in the Village. I think it was the Greenwich Theater or something when I saw that. And when the section on, you know, if you guys have, of course you've seen sure, it. Sure, yeah. But I was sitting in the theater, and when that Shea Stadium section came on, I mean, I got knocked out of my, you know, right back into the chair of the theater. I'm like, wow. Yeah. And, and that, that was Ron's work. Yeah, and it was awesome, although they did speed up, I think, some of the well, audio. They, they did that for a lot of the movies. Yeah. Just, was, but then... Comes the anthology. Right. As a matter of fact, let me back up that. John sure. Lennon, imagine, I think they used studio recording over they the, did. the film. They, they did. did. Yes. So when you got to the anthology, uh, that's where you really got a good taste of this uh, refurbished film. They had like, what, four songs in there? But it was from the John Lennon Imagine movie that they used the anthology video, correct? No, no. They took it directly off the remastered film. Oh, Ron, they did. Ron worked on both of those projects. Okay. Yeah, he made sure you saw the real stuff. So no, those were taken from the new remastered uh, negatives, films, whatever it is. But but Dave, I think where where Mitch is going, I think it, it, did Ron readdress the project again in '95, or was that from the the '88 oh, remaster? It's from the '88 remaster. It is now. okay, yes. okay, right, okay. As that's, far as I know, that's where uh, I was going with it. Right. Yeah. So now all of that's remastered for the anthology, or you know, for John Lennon. Uh-huh. Now it's in the anthology, looking beautiful at yeah. that time, even 20 years ago, pretty much. And, and they even promote, they had um, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, yeah, the Dizzy whole Miss cut. Yeah, Dizzy Miss promote. And let me say one thing, too, with the anthology, that is the Shea Stadium soundtrack. Is it? Yes. That's from the, I mean, I guess from the TV show soundtrack. Again, like I said, in John Lennon Imagine, they used a studio recording. Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Now but it's actual Shea. Now the anthology... Yeah, the remastered film has 
the redone soundtrack that they did. The sweetening, right? Yes, the sweetening. Oh, okay, yes. that's what I was going to ask. Because Paul did sweetening originally on, the, and in the book it tells exactly what tracks have what. Because that's what's great, that breakdown yeah. and there's covers a letter. each individual, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot yeah, of people detailing. don't. Everybody thought that, you know, they, they sweetened everything. Now, Paul did add bass parts to a lot, but there are some that are. And just the idea of how clandestine that, that overdub had to be. Yeah. yeah. You know, we never, you know, we hear about it and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course it's sweetened. And you, you sort but. Because of things having to do with the musicians' union and the this and the that. And well, the, they, it was, they had a recording contract with EMI. Yeah. They couldn't record for Ed Sullivan Productions now. Sure, right. Sure. So they what? went to a different studio. They went away from Abbey Road. and Yeah, which most people it. don't know. You just assume they go where they, right. you know, right. where they right. normally record. Well, of course, and just to give it a little bit, Hard Day's Night was the only untouched track. Right. Only right. lowered in the mix because they were adding the, right. the audio over it. Right. Yeah, they had commentary right. over that one. Which yeah. I wish they didn't. I mean, I understand why they did, because it's a documentary and you're getting the four Beatles talking about it. Right. But I right. wish they didn't, because, you know, that's such a recognizable song, and, you know, maybe nice they would have talked over it naturally. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been interesting, because that was just the studio version anyway. Right. Well, you know, the remastered audio doesn't have that commentary on it. Right. It's the song, so. So, let's go on now to 2014, Dave. Oh, geez. And let, okay. Well, yeah, let's, let's, good morning. Well, good morning. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what may be. And the only thing I will ask is, and please don't take this as a criticism at all. Okay. But the book came out in uh, late 2013. Right. And the 50th anniversary of the concert is 2015. Right. I know there was a lot of splash for the 40th for 2014. Uh, sorry, yeah, 50th, yeah. yeah. Why would you not wait until next year when there's the possibility of something happening with this? You know, I'm not the kind of person to wait. Okay. I had that advice from a lot of publishers, a lot of agents, a lot of people I talked to. Wait until 2015. Wait until 2015. I'm like, well, why? You right. know, we're Beatles right. fans. I want stuff. I might not be around in 2015. <laughs> you know we hope saying? you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might be in New York City and get hit by a bus. It almost oh, happened a few times. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. no, I, I finished the book. And um, it was time. I thought, you know, just, and it will still be out in 2015. Exactly. No, correct, correct. You, that's when you do, come on, you know how marketing works, Mitch. Exactly. That's when Dave does the anniversary edition <laughs> with a new cover with a different photo. I can't, and I can't get a new cover. That one's too good. That, no, that's good. true. But you just put like expanded and revised or something like that. <laughs> yeah, to include yeah, the added video. Chapter yeah. and, well, yeah. I'll, I'll add, a, I'll add the, the transcript of this show to it. There How's you that go. go. That works. Well, let me well, ask you. Well, let, let, me, uh, let me first ask, if the book has come out, has any new information come out since the book? No. That you know, someone comes up to you and said, "Well, I actually have all the film because <laughs> yeah, I, no, I was I, the I, janitor like at the film theater." Nothing like that has happened, and I've got it from the very reliable sources that there is no film besides what you see on the television special. Right. That's the only right. film that exists. Meanwhile, so, Ron's opening up a drawer every once yeah. in a while and going, <laughs> "Yeah, exactly." You know, that could be too. I don't know. But, no, uh, so no, it, it's funny because even like after I did the Cleveland book, now there will be an update someday on that one. Cool. Uh, I don't know when, because people did come out of the woodwork. And I've got, I'm looking at a wall in my office right now that's full of Beatles pictures taken on stage in Cleveland, Ohio in 64. Wow. I've got a film clip that I showed at the Beatles Fest that actually shows the police walking out on stage and stopping that concert. I don't know anyone else that has that except the girl who shot it, and she gave it to me. Very wow, cool. Wow, she gave uh, it to you? Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, I mean, there will be an update to that book. But this Shea Stadium, uh, I came out with it, and I haven't heard anything new about it since. It's, it's pretty much all in there. Well, there's one particular thing that, that struck me as, 
had it come out and around, I mean, it's still really cool that it's in here in 2014, but had it been brought to light 25 years ago, may have quieted down someone who was constantly questioning in public what was going on. But there's a letter written between uh, father and son. Yes. Uh, between the Adamses. Yes. And the Adams family? The Adams family. The Adams family, yes. And Michael and Clay. Michael and Clay. And there is a really interesting moment where Clay talks about his uh, delightful meeting with George Martin, at which point George uh, basically talks to him about that, well, we sacked Pete Best because he wasn't good enough. Or mm-hmm. I had Pete Best sacked because he wasn't good enough. And I just found it kind of cool to see that in black and white. Yeah. Because... For, for how many years as Beatle fans did we hear Pete talk about, well, I still don't know, was I the most popular? Was it this? Was it jealousy? Uh-huh. Was it? And let's face it, as Beatle fans, we all walked around with a thought bubble over our head saying, Pete, you simply weren't a good enough drummer. Exactly. I've heard the old recording. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it was this kind of cool little sort of smoking gun in a way Yeah, that you could have just, it just drops right in with the book. But it's a really neat thing to see in print. This dialogue from this gentleman who is having a sit-down with George Martin. Yeah. And relaying back to his son, yes, it's been and a lovely... The, and the letter great, was a very nice, touching letter, Very too. nice yeah. letter. It's just a... And so it was a really, I think, on your part, an editorial to do things like that and re- reprint a piece like that. That's just such an enjoyable thing to read. Well, well like the son Michael said, it was almost like having a fly on the wall. You bet. You know, because here you was bet. his dad, who, you know, was an older gentleman at the time, so he wasn't a big, you know, Beatles fan like the kids... But he's having lunch with George Martin. He's in the studio with the Beatles. What a trip. While they're doing this. And to him, it's, you know, he's just reporting to his son because he knew his son was such a fan. Yeah. And and here's what was going on. Here's exactly what I remember. And and that was a three-page typed out, you know, single-space letter. Just lovely, covering it, like, minute by minute. Yeah. And then he arrived, and then, and it's just, just phenomenal. Just great perspective. Yeah, and I liked it, too, because even as a... When I was younger, you might have heard little rumors that that film had been sweetened. Right. We didn't know yes. for sure. They never really came out with that until many years later. But here it was all just documented right there. Here's exactly what happened. That's cool. So you don't have to guess, like, who did they do this one or did they do that one? Right. Here, here's the scoop. So, so let me go and ask you the all-important question. Do you have any insight as to what may happen with this film for the you know, I, I wish I did, but as it says in the book, Ron Fermanac is the one who has the connections with Apple, and he right. he refurnished the whole film, and he handed it over to them. Mm. And since Neil Aspinall passed away, and you know, other people now have taken over Apple, it's still yes. there, but there really is no contact, I guess, with them, and he said it's sitting in the vault. It's just there. It's done. It's finished. It's ready to be put on a DVD and shipped out. It's ready to be shown in the theaters. It's, it's done. It wouldn't have to be sort of restored again based on the fact that it was done in 88? I, I, I don't think so. Uh, the way he talked, I, I don't think so. Mm. You know, it, it, he made it seem like it was it was finished. And the reality is you've also got whatever that is 16 years later that the film has had to decompose more. Right. So the reality is what Ron captured in 1988 with his transfer may be better when you look at the source material however many years later, 14, 16 years later, whatever it is, if he attempted to redo it. 
Now, now you got my head spinning right now. <laughs> Sorry, mine about that. too. Believe me. Well, yeah. <laughs> Dave, there, there is an audio recording though. Yeah. Right. So the, the stuff we heard on the anthology of everybody's trying to be my baby came from a separate audio recording. What happened with that? That's a remix. Okay. They even say that on the anthology. Right. But for some reason, and Ron couldn't understand this at all. And when he was talking to me, I, I couldn't figure this out either. On the anthology, it's in mono. He yeah. remastered the whole audio on stereo, and that's never come out. Bizarre. So the clippets I told you earlier that I heard, she's a woman and everybody's trying to be my baby, I've heard it in stereo. And I'm telling you guys, it's fantastic. So wow. technically, if they wanted to, if, if Apple wanted to go back, if they have an, an audio track, they can sync the audio to the film. Yes. And get rid of the overdub stuff. Yes. Or, ha or have both come out if it was on DVD or Blu-ray because you can fit it on there. So you know what? I'm going to go back. And again, I have to refer to the book because we're getting deep into this stuff. And I think Ron told me, I mean, he refurnished it with the, the soundtrack you heard on television, the sweetened version. Okay. Yes. Right. But right. I think he would be able to put the audio from the show, the raw audio tapes, to the the footage, the film footage. If, if right. asked, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, he could do that. I don't think uh, he's done that. He may okay. have. I don't remember. Okay. I think no, others it, have. But, but, yeah. that, but that reel is there, though. Yes. Okay, that's all I want to know. And at this point, the reality is, too, that with the DVD multiple audio right, channel you can, scenario, yeah. you could put all three of those audio yeah. channels on a DVD release. Of, yeah, of and, and the, the TV show is in mono, obviously, because right. that's what they had in, in 1967. Yeah, you listen so. to it on a little speaker in your television set, yeah. you know, living room kind of thing. Yeah, the other cool thing, too, is that uh, uh, Ron told me how he found those audio tapes. They were down in Clay Adams' basement for, what, Jeez. 30 years, 40 years? Wow. He, they were supposed to be destroyed. You know, it was under contract with Brian Epstein, the Beatles. Everything had to be destroyed. And he hung on to the audio tapes. God bless him. Thank yeah. God for people defying orders. People like us. Stuff. People yeah. like yes. us are... Dave, that's you know that's something I would have done. I know Tony and, and Mitchell might have, well would you have bet. done that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, bet. I would have had him under my pillow. Forget yeah, about in really. the basement. But you know he would have been in trouble if he'd been caught. You know that's why they did not save the, the video. Right. You know it was under contract. Unbelievable. Wow. Just, uh, so is there anything that you learned that that you really were just dumbfounded by researching this book? Well. I think, you know, we talk a lot about the film restoration and everything. Of course, that was all like every day. It was like, I can't believe this. I oh, didn't know sure. this. Uh, the one thing I thought was really interesting was that the Rolling Stones, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were backstage, and they were brought in by uh, Peter Bennett. Yes. The promotion right. man. And I talked to Peter. He's, he's a big part of the book. He's no longer with us. And just a, a fun guy to talk to. He a was a PR guy. A real character. But a real PR guy. Yes, exactly. But he brought Mick and Keith to the concert. By boat. Yeah, by boat. In the marina, if you've, heard, if you've gone to Shea, right? Right, there's a marina right outside there. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and, and with them was Alan Klein. <sighs> and Ron Schneider, who was Alan's nephew. And Ron is in the book. He's yes. the producer of the film Gimme Shelter. Because he right. was the Rolling Stones business manager right. at that time. And so they all got off the boat and came into Shea Stadium and hung out with the Beatles in the dressing room. And they, they left early, though, right? Yeah, they couldn't hear anything. But also, wasn't it considered to be a distraction because the kids were yelling? We yeah, the when they, uh, I, yeah, the stuff that was going on in the dugout before, too. I also found that very fascinating with John Lennon talking to the dugout with uh, yeah. these guys. But Mick and Keith were in there, and the kids across from the dugout in Shea Stadium, they could see in there, they could see Mick and Keith, so they started yelling for the Stones. Unbelievable. And oh, it was just complete. And Bobby Vinton. Bobby Vinton was back. There's a picture of him 
in the book backstage. Well, that's the, that picture I found fascinating because there's a picture and it looks like utter chaos. And there's Bobby Vinton. Oh, yeah, head. like deer in the headlights. Yeah, yeah. But there's Everybody's... no Ringo. They're waiting for Ringo to go on. And George, you see him and you see a little bit of John. The top and, of Paul's face. Well, yeah, and... but, but that picture made it seem like they were all in like one dugout, sort of like a Monty Python, you know, where follow Brian, go. You know, yeah. it, it was so weird. Yeah, it was just, it really explains it. You know, I tried to bring that feeling, the emotion to the book. I mean, I want people, again, as a fan, I want people to feel they were there with them. This is what's right. going on. And yeah. then when I saw that picture, I'm like, oh my gosh, and you know, George Harrison, you see him, and he's kind of looking back because according to George Orsino, they're waiting for Ringo. Come on, hurry up, we're going. <laughs> right. And uh, this was right before they ran into the dugout. There was a little space there before they went into the dugout and then ran onto the field. And, um, you know, the, thing, the funny thing about it, too, is the, the guy who took the picture, George Orsino, of course, knew Bobby Vinton. You know, <laughs> Bobby Vinton was a big, you know, Philadelphia kind of guy where he was from, and so he was in the center of the shot, and George didn't realize that one of the guys, the profile in there was Mick Jagger. <laughs> yes, That's exactly. Great. Dave, uh, there's a personal thing for you in here. Your, your cousin Mimi, was at the show? Yeah, my cousin Mimi, the Rockette from New York City's uh, Radio City Music Hall. And she actually met the Beatles. You, uh, she had about. dinner with them. She sat next to Ringo. And how did that happen? Uh, again, well, she was a Rockette, and she uh, had a date that night. It was a Saturday night. It was following the Ed Sullivan show. A lot of people didn't know. You know, the Beatles snuck out of their hotel. They snuck out of the Warwick after the Ed Sullivan show, and they went to Rockefeller Center to the Rainbow Room up at the top, and they had dinner. And my cousin was dancing right across the street, and afterwards she had a date with a guy who worked for Capitol Records. Mm. And uh, Mm. she would go out between shows, because, you know, the Rockettes did like six shows a day. I used to go over there and sit in the first row at Radio City when I was a kid and watch all these high-kick girls. (laughs) Hey, how you doing? (laughs) And uh, Listen, I used to go in the dressing room, too, until I got to be about 13, then they threw me out. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. Hey, wait a minute. And and they went across the street. She said, where are we going? You know, she had a show later on in the evening, too. And they said, we're going to go just the Rainbow Room. So she said she got in the elevator and went upstairs. The elevator door opened, and there were the four Beatles and their manager, Brian Epstein. And wow. they had dinner with him. Wow. Amazing. Unbelievable. Well, you really do take us through, Shay. I mean, you, you interview so many different people, and I, I, we didn't even mention Russ Lees, who does Beatles suits, because oh, yeah. he owns Paul McCartney's actual suit, and how much they were sweating. But we, we do want to leave stuff for the people to read, because we don't want to go into all of it, because we want you, we want to let them... Buy the know. book, buy the book. I was going to make this the audio version. <laughs> well, we can well, work on that too. Right, on that yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. That's something else. <laughs> but but it the book is called "The Beatles at Shea Stadium: The Story Behind Their Greatest Concert" by Dave Schwenson, and it is on North Shore Publishing. And uh, we just we enjoy the book. We we want people to go buy the book, and we really do appreciate you taking a few minutes with us on the show. Uh, thank you, Once guys. Again. I, I really enjoy talking with you, and I enjoy your show, man. I listen, you know. Oh, so we do appreciate you. that, well, and you. the check will clear. And thank me. you for the <laughs> mention <laughs> in the book, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that was that very nice. Very, very nice view. So, uh, for Fab Four Free For All, uh, I have been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod. Joining me today has been... Tony Tuguardo. And... Rob Leonard. And... Dave Schwenson. Author of... The Beatles at Shea Stadium, which you can find at BeatlesSheaStadium.com and on Amazon and all the good booksellers. Sounds cool. great. And Dave, we appreciate it again, and we look forward to your Beatles in Chicago book in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have you on again. <laughs> i got to take a nap. <laughs> Actually, Beatles in Los Angeles would be good. Hollywood Bowl. But he's moving Dodgers. to Chicago. I know that. I know that. So we're, we're pushing wherever he goes. He does a new hey, book I, on the Beatles. 
I hear you. International uh, Amphitheater. You. They didn't play Wrigley Field, and, uh, but they played the Amphitheater in 64. <laughs> we'll get to that. So We'll talk to you in, in a couple, but we appreciate it, Dave. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Catch you later. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Triguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.